Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Julia Raymond as she explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. Hello, everyone. Today, we're kicking off another episode of Rethink Retail with my guest, Jason Stuckey. We are going to talk a lot about e-commerce today, strategy, digital marketing, and I'm going to introduce Jason. He is an authority in advertising and e-commerce. He has over 10 years of experience in digital marketing, e-commerce strategy, and back office operations. He's launched many successful D2C endeavors for celebrities, including Rihanna, Kate Hudson, Kim Kardashian, and Michael B. Jordan, and has been an integral part of building over a dozen online brick-and-mortar businesses. So, Jason, you have have a deep understanding of e-commerce and in your role as a general manager at Lindworks, you use your experience to implement what you call total commerce strategies for thousands of global sellers and brands. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Julia. Great to have you here. I wanted to dive right in. Usually, especially on this show, we talk a lot about the in-store shopping experience, how much it's changed, what the consumer expectation, but we don't talk as much about the e-commerce experience and the nitty-gritty, everything that goes into that. It's very complex, but it sometimes feels like an afterthought. So, Jason, how important is experience for today's e-commerce shopper? Uh, it's huge. We've kind of looked at things in silos. You've got in-store, e-commerce, wholesale, and these have been distinct channels and they've been treated as silos to date. But that's mainly because e-commerce, even at its best for an established brand, is only driving about 20% of their sales. So with 80% being retail, it's no wonder that a lot of focus has gone into that. And that's why e-commerce strategy has generally been an afterthought. But now it really doesn't make sense to think of digital channels as an afterthought. In fact, it's really leading to an identity crisis for a lot of brands who, who don't know how to make that leap because they have to transition. And just in the last 18 months over COVID, we've seen a 5% increase in e-commerce as a percentage of retail sales. And that's the same amount that we've seen in the past seven years. So it's a tremendous amount of growth. And it really is a, an indicator. It's kind of like Napster was for the recording industry. This is retail's what I would call Napster indicator. And it's signaling that digital first is an inevitability. And now it's time to make the shift. Over the next 10 years, you'll see the difference between those who decided to make a shift now and those who waited it out, hoping that you know things would get better. We're starting to see and hear on the lips of retailers this acronym, OMO, Online Merge Offline. It's things like buy online, pick up in store, buying online and returning in store, accessing the company website and digital assets in the store for online purchase, merged with last mile delivery, like really rapid last mile delivery services. And then the last thing is really digitizing those touch points in store. So taking the consumer insights from the online environment and bringing that into the retail experience to help consumers make better choices. So the promise of digital first is that it will deliver a much better experience for consumers. And the big win all around will be centered on convenience. So 76% of consumers say that convenience is their number one priority when making a purchase. And that's ticking up. It's, it's not as much. Cost is important, 
but convenience is king now. So this is what consumers are demanding and what consumers demand, sellers will have to work very, very hard to meet those demands. And we're really at a critical inflection point in this 20-year evolution and reimagination of what commerce is to be moving forward. A lot to unpack here, Jason. You said cost is important, but convenience is king now. That is so true. I really like how you said that in such a succinct way because it does reflect the changes that we've seen over the past couple years with the pandemic. And just for emphasis, I want to make sure I got this right for our listeners. You said there was a 5% increase in e-commerce over the past one year, and that same increase took seven years prior. Correct. Yep. E-commerce is kind of waffling between 13 to 16% of overall retail sales. And it's kind of funny to even think that because it's so pervasive in our world today to think that it's only that small percentage. But as we think about where it's headed, there's a statistic out there that says by 2040, it'll be 95% of retail transactions. So even though it's a small percentage, it's no longer something that to be taken lightly. Sellers really need to be focused on what their strategy is moving forward in order to meet those needs. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I have said the words BOPUS, curbside, all of the different acronyms related to delivery or pickup models than I have in this past year. So when I heard you bring out a brand new shiny acronym, usually I am, you know, I'm like, oh my God, another acronym. But that one, I actually, I'm going to start using that, the OMO, Online Merge Offline. Finally, there's a way we can say all of those things with one acronym. That brings me to my next question. Because things have changed so much the past two years, both online and in-store, and the merging of all of that, what are some trends you're seeing for e-commerce sellers as we approach the holiday season? That's a great question. We're seeing a lot of work on strategy. So really across four main topics. One is marketplace strategy. Marketplaces have grown their gross merchandise volume, or GMV, by more than 80% over the last 18 months. And they control or transactions in terms of overall share of e-commerce transactions, marketplaces are above 50%. So these, these marketplaces are masters of engagement and trying to compete against them as a brand is a fool's errand. So a lot of brands are really thinking about how do they work with these marketplaces where consumers are spending their time, where do they sell, and how do they do this successfully? The second thing is really around the inventory and fulfillment strategy. More channels means more complexity. So how do you deploy your inventory everywhere simultaneously? And how do you get it to your customers quickly and conveniently in a method that they expect? The third one is about personalization. It's really getting a holistic view of the customer. And that's all like personalization and data. This is what a lot of major brands are talking about is how do we get our data in one place to get that holistic view of our customer? And then from that, how do we use that data to make better product decisions and drive a better customer experience? And then the last thing, which is really fascinating is how do we make money from e-commerce Companies focus on a single sale mentality. How much margin are we making on a single sale? But when you're trying to sell online, you're competing for eyeballs and you're competing not only against millions of websites, but you're also competing against marketplaces that are spending billions of dollars 
creating movie studios, creating engaging methods to keep your audience and keep those eyeballs in their environment. And so it's a very difficult place to be where you're having to spend a lot of money just to drive traffic to your website, often to the point where you're no longer making money or you're losing money on a transaction. And so though consumers are demanding products be sold online, sellers are really struggling to make money off of this. So it's about shifting the mindset away from a single cost per acquisition or CPA or CAC perspective and focusing more on LTV, lifetime value of a customer. How do you really engage with a customer to keep them as a loyal customer and have a long-term relationship with them. That's truly how you make money in e-commerce. But it's very difficult for these big companies that, hey, we're going to spend millions of dollars retooling our stack to deliver this expectation to consumers and meet our customers and delight them. But we're not making money off of this. So these are really the four things that we're seeing as trends emerging and brands are thinking more strategically, less tactically now about how they shift their strategies. Absolutely. And it's been a difficult thing to do because I've heard through podcasting over the past year, especially, it's hard to focus on strategy when it feels like you have to constantly be reacting to new things every day. And so to get into that mindset is really important as we go into the holiday season. And I like what you said about the fourth thing. How do we make money on e-commerce? I want to throw not necessarily a curveball question at you, but just out of my own curiosity. I mean, you've built some D2C brands for big celebrities, which is really intriguing for me, especially as an American. You know, we're obsessed with our (laughs) celebrities here. But How do you feel about advertising then? Because you said you should move more to the LTV mindset versus the CAC, but is advertising something you think brands and retailers should go big on? Because it's getting so much more expensive. It is getting more expensive. In the brands that I was a part of creating, if we did not have a subscription model and a membership model, we would not have been successful because the cost per acquisition of a customer exceeded the cost or the money that we made from that customer on the first sale. So it was really the third or fourth sale where we would break even. And that was our benchmark was how do we bring these customers in and then how do we keep them in? And how do we delight them so that they stay customers for the long haul? I think in terms of advertising, what you're seeing is traditional advertising channels turn into commerce channels. So you're seeing the likes of Google, which is repealed a little bit because commerce is hard, but they put their foot forward into changing their platform you know, from a just an advertising only platform to a commerce platform. And then if you look at the earnings call, from Q2 with Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg, all they're talking about is how they take their social channels, which are advertising channels right now, and turn them into commerce channels. And so this presents opportunities for sellers and brands to partner with these channels that they've been giving a lot of money to from an advertising perspective to start working on how do we take it from advertising to transaction. Um, And you'll see more of this popping up. There's a delicate balance because at certain points, something's got to give. You can't have brands losing money and continuing to push forward. So these channels will start to migrate their strategies to allow brands to still make money and want to transact on their platforms, but it's about rethinking how they do that. Sure is, and I like the word rethinking. Jason, what is your take on total commerce? Because I've heard this talked about a little bit, and I want, you know, for our retailers who are listening, how does a total commerce help create a differentiated customer experience? Yeah, you know, 
First, it's, it's probably helpful to explain what we mean by total commerce. Total commerce is kind of looking at where things are heading. As I talked about earlier, channels have been seen as silos or been treated as silos. But as the number of channels increases and the need for sellers to be on these channels increases, it starts to commoditize these channels. We can only come up with so many acronyms or so many names. At a certain point, it will blend all together and just become commerce or what we call total commerce. And so that is where the market is heading. And ultimately, you know what sellers need to be prepared for in a total commerce environment is how do we make that experience for us seamless? So just as they are focused on driving a seamless experience for their customers across all of these channels, as a technology provider at Linworks, we try and provide that same experience for our customers, which are businesses. So for a brand or seller, consumers are demanding that they meet them where they are, which is like I said, increasing at an accelerating rate. The charge for us is to unlock this capability for brands via our platform without increasing overhead or complexity for them. So if your technology and process is dialed in, the process from click to ship should be the same no matter what channels you're selling on. And you know, if we get this unlock right, and that's what we're working on with brands is providing them with a technology platform that allows them to do this, they can focus on driving more energy into delivering a better consumer experience across these channels and engaging with customers across these channels and making more strategic decisions rather than reactionary tactical decisions that come from the chaos of having to manage and be everywhere at once. Mm -hmm. You said, I think channels are starting to become commoditized. In a sense, from an operational perspective, there's all these new channels. I mean, you think about it, it's like you've got your website, you've got Amazon, all of a sudden you've got Etsy, Howl's, Wayfair, Farfetch, and now you've got these social channels that are rising up, Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp, and now you've got TikTok. You know, you're going to be seeing more and more of these channels are coming faster and faster to sellers. And that presents a real challenge because imagine if you're a big brand, it's really important to make sure that you are seen in the world. And now all of a sudden there's this new channel that you need to spin up. And if you don't, your competitors are going to nudge you out of it. It's a very difficult world to be in. But as more and more channels arise from an operations perspective, it should be commoditized. doesn't matter what channel you're on. The operational internal back office operation should all be the same and treated the same. And that comes down to your technology stack and working with that technology stack to ensure that that process is homogenized so that you can deliver on the expectations that consumers expect across these channels. And a key thing to point out, you know, these channels are driving the expectations as well of consumers. Like Amazon has all conditioned us to believe that I click on a button, it's very easy to check out. And then ultimately I get that product in two days or less. That's your benchmark across all of your channels. So you build the technology or you bring in the technology and then you drive it towards ultimately the marketplace that is setting those consumer expectations for delivery or consumption. To your point of customers are demanding that sellers meet them where they are. And it seems like every day there's a new TikTok about this product you didn't know you needed on Amazon. And you'll see those become really viral and the sales just shoot up. And it's not just for, you know, the small one-off products or a small outfit. It's becoming more and more relevant, like you said, for bigger brands and retailers. You know, in some ways, fortunately, and in other ways, unfortunately, to be on these marketplaces and just to be super accessible to consumers. 
but it's easier said than done. Which brings me into my next question for you, Jason, which is your take on social commerce and where that's headed, because it's hard to keep up with. There's a lot of growth. Social commerce is going to be huge. I saw a stat today that said that 4% of e-commerce is occurring on social channels. That, that actually makes sense, but that number will grow very, very quickly. If you look at the generations, Gen Z is spending 20% more time on social media. That's four and a half hours a day on social media. So the idea is, you know, you have to meet your consumers or your customers where they're spending most of their time. It's on social channels and 43% of Gen Zers have already made a purchase on social commerce. As they gain more discretionary income, that will grow and it will grow exponentially. You can look at the data and you can see it kind of moving linearly, but I actually believe it's going to grow quite exponentially, especially as these social platforms start to build more robust tools for enabling commerce across their channel. You have to remember, Facebook is still early doors on where they are with their commerce strategy. It's very difficult to do commerce super well. They're getting those tools together. And guess what? TikTok's parent company is already doing it in China and they're doing it quite well. They're hell bent on getting that over to the US market as quickly as possible. And so as these channels start to add more tools for sellers, I expect a rapid adoption and increase to meet the demand and start to transact on these platforms. The other bit to really pay attention to, talk about Facebook. I've been in a meeting with Facebook where I walked out and I was shocked. I, I Like scared being, or shocked? <laughs> uh, little column A, little column B. Um, it was, it was eye-opening just how much data they have on consumers yeah. and how good they are at leveraging that data to target consumers. It was impressive. But I'm thankful in a way that Facebook wasn't around pre-college for me. Uh, So they don't really know my whole journey in life, and they're not able to kind of use that to help target and drive more targeted ads or products my way. But Gen Z is the one, you know, it's a generation that grew up in a digital world, and they've very much grown up in a social world. And so Facebook knows a tremendous amount of information about this generation and it goes from you know them being infants to where they are today. So that makes their capabilities much, much stronger. I'm very bullish on social commerce and their ability to target consumers. But I will say this, like it's not all doom and gloom. It's actually a good thing. And the reason it's a good thing is because of what the permutation of commerce has done to the psyche of individuals. There are 353 million listings on Amazon. If you were to spend a second on each listing, it would take you over 10 years to just look at the entire catalog of Amazon products. And that creates a lot of unhappiness. It's difficult for consumers to make choices on what products are going to suit them best. You know, if you look at it from a positive light, the more information these platforms know about you, the more they're able to help you solve that problem by introducing you to products that you actually like. You know, there's all these uh, conspiracy theories. It's Facebook listening to me. You know, when you're talking about cat food and all of a sudden five hours later, you're getting served an ad for cat food. They're not, but they're that good. Mm -hmm. It will only get better. But that's a thing, you know, I think it makes the journey for consumers much, much easier. And it gives rise to what we're calling the effortless economy. Consumers always trend towards the path of least resistance. And this effortless economy, the effortless consumption 
uh, products meeting you where you're spending time and products you actually like and want to buy, that's the next iteration of commerce and social channels are going to do this incredibly well. Wow, that was a lot of really good info. And the Gen Z stuff, very interesting. Path of least resistance totally makes sense. It's human nature. And it's funny when I hear you say, I think you said 4% of commerce is driven by social right now or, or made on social channels. I was in a conference this morning with a lot of really big brands and that came up and I just, I said, yep, that makes sense. I mean, it, it reminds me, and I will definitely come off as a millennial here, but it reminds me of many years ago when the debate was mobile. Okay, all the sales on e-commerce are taking place on desktop. When will the switch happen to mobile? And now it's like mobile is king, right? For almost everything. When it comes to e-commerce, we're always on the phones doing our buying and it just it blows my mind how, you know, in just a few years, this conversation will be very different. And you said like 350 million listings on Amazon that's only going to continue to grow. What are some other channels that you think will be key for retailers to be competitive? Um, I think that obviously, like we talked about, social channels will continue to grow. I think TikTok is where we're getting the most interest or our sellers are asking us, you know, what is TikTok strategy? How do we prepare for that? So I think it's very clear that social channels are a leading channel. I think the second one is it goes back to retail. And what is retail's role in building a really strong direct-to-consumer brand experience? You know, I know I've used the word reimagine, but it really is a reimagination of retail and how it can add value to that digital experience. We've heard for a decade now, retail is dead, retail is dead. It's absolutely not dead. It's just in the process of a transformation. And that transformation is more about delivering a really good boutique experience where you get to step into the brand. This was Apple's genius move. You know, people were laughing at them when they said, we're going into retail and we're spending a lot of money on our stores. It wasn't necessarily to turn those stores into profit centers. It was to allow consumers to experience the brand and have a place to go to have a better experience than what Apple was doing, which was predominantly online. And so I think the next frontier, as these digital first brands really start to grow up, is what do we do for retail? And that's what we did at Textile. It was, we were digital first. And then at a certain point in time, we couldn't ignore the need for retail. And so we went into retail with a totally different concept of how we were going to do it. And that was taking the membership model, the membership data that we had and utilizing that to drive a much better experience. So when you walked into our store, the associate in the store would say, hey, are you a member? Get the name of the customer and then pull up their profile and have things like iPads in stores for the customer to be able to look at what they purchased and learn more about the products that they had in hand. So before you walked into the changing room, being able to look on a screen and interact with the screen to learn more about the fabrics of the product, why they were designed the way they were, why it might be beneficial, how it can complement the products that you already have in your closet that we know that you purchased. I really think it's a reimagination of retail. And I know I, I'm, I'm probably going to be an outlier on that. But I think like, again, looking at the channels that sellers need to pay attention to, you know, of course, you've got the digital channels and that's very present, but retail is something that you shouldn't forget. Mm -hmm. And you said retail is not dead, Jason. And it's interesting because just the other day, this week, I spoke with Rosemary Coates. She's a supply chain expert. And she said, we have imported more than we have in previous years from China over the last year. It's actually growing 
and retail continues to come back in a big way. And those were some good examples you gave. I know that I've heard from retailers who are hesitant about really embracing or going big with marketplaces or D2C channels is the issues of brand management and making that be really consistent. So what are some key factors when you're talking with your clients about managing a brand across many channels or, or new channels? The first thing I tell brands is your brand is your power. And that is your leverage against these marketplaces, against the threat of these marketplaces homogenizing your brand. It's the Achilles heel of Amazon, the everything store. You know, it's not a great place to really step in and experience a brand. And so owning your brand, owning your power is how you combat that desire for marketplaces to make everyone look the same. And ultimately, you know, what we tell sellers is they're not your customers, they're Amazon's customers. So you really have to lean into building a strong brand. What we did at Savage X Fenty, for example, with Rihanna was we went into the conversation with Amazon saying, look, you want our brand. What can you do for us? And what we did is created our own branded experience within Amazon's store that gave us more control. And then we leveraged their channel like Prime Video and they sponsored and now pay for that Savage X Fenty New York Fashion Week fashion show. And that's really good synergy across that channel. And it's only possible, of course, we had Rihanna, which is a big draw, but it's only possible because of what Rihanna stands for, which is brand. That's amazing. I love that story, Jason. Nike did the same thing. I mean, they explored Amazon. I've talked with them and they explored Amazon and said, hey, it's a great revenue channel for us. In fact, it actually drove more sales back to their website and their direct own channels when they hmm. had Amazon. But the sad part was Nike cares about their brand and Amazon was not providing them with data that would allow them to drive a better brand experience for their customers, for their members. So what did Nike do? They said, thank you very much, appreciate it, but we're gonna take our business elsewhere. And so then they partnered with Zalando and Zalando was more than willing to give them more control over the branded experience and more information on the consumers so that Nike could take that back and say, you know, look, let's build this into our strategy. Marketplaces are really important, but we wanna do it in a way that doesn't destroy our brand. Brand power and focusing on what your brand value is is really important as you approach marketplaces. Absolutely. And it must have felt good walking into Amazon and saying, you know, what can you do for us? Right. <laughs> the, rare, the rare opportunity. It's important yeah. to point out though, for a small seller though, what can they do? How can they participate in marketplaces without destroying their brands? And there are a couple strategies you can deploy. One, don't give the marketplace your entire assortment. If customers mm. want your assortment, they want everything that you have to offer, keep it on your own channels. Keep it on channels where you have more control. Utilize your best products on those channels so that it's it's kind of like uh, your fishing bait to attract people to your brand. But ultimately, don't put your full assortment onto the marketplace because ultimately you're you're you are giving up control over your brand if you're doing that. So that's kind of a strategy for smaller brands that they can utilize in order to make sure that they're not just throwing their brand out the way. And then the second thing is focus on sharing your message on as many channels as possible. Consumers really care about what a brand stands for. Gen Z, millennials are all now very focused on brand message and the impact that the brand has on the environment. I mean, these are the challenges of our generation. These are the challenges of our time. So of course, it's important to us 
to understand what a brand stands for. If they're, hey, bye, 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 and they're not focused on sustainability or they're not focused on best practices in their supply chain and treating you know, their workers fairly, these are things that consumers care about. And so sharing that message and what you're doing to focus on that on your own channels is an important part to owning your brand and ultimately succeeding in the world as it moves forward. Mm -hmm. And it's so true. I mean, I don't usually like to share personal anecdotes too much as an example of something, but I have noticed recently a lot of the reels on Instagram or some of the TikToks, I guess they know I follow retail, are people calling out brands like fast fashion brands for some of their mishaps and saying, you know, if you buy this, think twice. The customers do find out and they spread the message. It's more important than ever. Absolutely. From a logistics perspective, what would you say is essential in order to manage scaling up uh, across selling from different channels and, and international markets? I'm biased on this one, but I would say focusing on your technology. I've sat with a lot of really big brands this past week, actually, and the discussion that they were talking about was this legacy technology that they have in their stack and trying to make that bend and flex to a very rapidly changing environment. And a lot of them are coming to the conclusion that we need to throw it all out and start from scratch. But that starts with really choosing technologies that unlock the ability to run your logistics in a more efficient manner. I think that logistics, if you have really strong technology, and again, I'm biased, but if you have really strong technology, that should make the logistics much, much easier and much less of a worry or concern. You should be able to easily spin up a 3PL if you need to in a new territory, plug that into your tech stack, and ultimately that doesn't slow you down at all. And then as that market grows, switch that 3PL out with your own warehouse in the back end to drive down your cost and increase your efficiency. So it comes down to making some very difficult choices about what technology partner you're going to pick moving forward in order to be successful. But you want one that A, has an international presence. Can't stress that enough. There are plenty of technology providers out there, but most of them are focused on a single market. So choose a provider that is international and does that well. And then the second thing is choose one that allows you to be as flexible as possible without customization. That's where you really get into problems is, you know, businesses are very hesitant to change their process. Change management is difficult, but the more you change your technology to fit your business, the more inflexible that technology becomes. It's We were laughing in a session earlier this week with a brand where he said, if an associate sneezes in Germany, it affects the store in California. It's because <laughs> we've customized everything to fit our needs rather than addressing the real difficult process of having to change how we operate. So are you saying it's like a double-edged sword, the customization aspect? The decision to customize or not to customize or to build versus buy always comes down to a decision between changing internal process or changing the technology. And it's harder to change your internal process because people are hard to move. And we call this mm. change antibodies. As soon as you start saying, hey, we're going to change how we do something, there are always those change antibodies that pop up in your business. So that makes it very difficult to get people on board with that change. But that is what leads retailers to start to customize things. And that has a consequence. That's a short-term fix but it also has a consequence over time. And so what we're telling brands is, look, in this 
time of change. COVID is a massive time of change. Now is the time to have those difficult discussions. It's difficult discussions about process and how you're doing things because everybody's open now to the idea that, look, we've got to change how we're doing something if we're going to be successful. Having those difficult conversations with your suppliers or distributors and saying, look, we got to go direct to consumer. We're either going to do this with you or we're going to do it without you, but we have to do this. It really comes down to leveraging the COVID catalyst as an opportunity to have these discussions and do it the right way rather than band-aid, customize, and stitch fix everything along the way to placate those change antibodies within your organization. I think it's a good message because it comes back directly to the question about scaling. And so if changing the process is hard, but in the long run, it allows you to scale and adapt faster, totally understand your point. You've had a lot of experience in D2C. What is your just general take on, like, it's such a popular topic right now in retail. Do you think that, like, established incumbents should be definitely having a D2C strategy, or do you think it's not for everyone? 100% D2C all the way. There will be two types of companies that are successful in the future of e-commerce. Companies that provide technology to make e-commerce easier, or platforms that allow you to conduct e-commerce on them, like marketplaces. And the second one is direct-to-consumer brands. You really need to have control over your supply chain. That will drive your success in a world where products become commoditized. So like if you're a retailer, so for example, Bed Bath & Beyond, they're a retailer that sells other people's products. They have a very high expense of very large real estate in very expensive areas. And what consumers have been doing is walking into those stores, trying those products, and then going and buying them somewhere else online for cheaper. Ultimately, in order to be successful, you have to d- adopt a D2C strategy. And that's what the private equity company behind Bed Bath & Beyond is starting to do. We're creating white label brands that you cannot get anywhere else other than our stores. And that is their position of how they fortify against what's happened in retail in general. So that's why D2C brands have been so successful is because you can't get the products anywhere else other than them, other than where they decide to sell them. And so that gives them complete control over price, complete control over their supply chain. It keeps them defended against other people undercutting them on price. Price has always been a big driver for commerce. Think about Walmart, always rolling back prices. It's the place to get everything you want for the cheapest price possible. And then over the last 10 years, it's been, hey, come to Best Buy. Uh, If you find it cheaper online, just buy it from us, please. But ultimately, the way to to fully defend against this strategy is, is to be direct to consumer and control the products and where you distribute them completely, rather than giving them in the hands of other distributors that will do that for you. Jason, we are now heading into holiday season, and there are still some issues in supply chain going on. There's a lot of challenges retailers are going to face. What are some that you're expecting for this holiday season? Uh, The number one thing is inventory. Inventory, inventory, inventory. In a session today, a big brand said, I'm not sure we'll be able to run a Black Friday promotion because the inventory is so challenged. Consumers have been protected all the way up until about mid-Q2 of this year. Consumers have not felt the pain that sellers have felt in the supply chain. But going forward into Q4, they can't hold that off any longer. We're seeing shipping costs rise 
by 7, 8x. We're seeing pileups in ports and we're seeing major supply chain constraints across the board going into the holiday season. Products are just simply not available. So it will be hard on sellers, but it will now start to be really hard on consumers. And we're not trained that way, right? We're trained to click a button and it shows up on our doorstep in two days. But consumers are going to be shocked to find that a lot of products are not going to be available. And the deals that they've seen in past years in certain categories are just going to be non-existent. And so there's a lot of question marks about what Black Friday, Cyber Monday is going to bring. How many discounts are we going to see? What types of products are we going to see those discounts on? So I think it's going to be a really interesting story to watch. And what we're seeing sellers do is pivot to, hey, we don't want to give up revenue. We don't want to give up sales because the discretionary income and spending desire from consumers is there. That was proven on Prime Day, setting Mm -hmm. records. There's money there and people want to buy products, but without inventory to meet that demand, there's a real risk of a drop in revenues. So we see sellers starting to think about, okay, what are we doing for gift cards? You know, What are we doing for pre-orders? How do we still transact with consumers when we don't have inventory? There aren't a lot of good answers to that question, but I would expect consumers to see, hey, spend $80, get a $100 gift card with us. And I, I think that's going to pop up more often than people think. And for any retailers or brands listening, that might be something they should start exploring sooner than later. Because as you said, it might not make sense to run the Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales and promotions that historically consumers are used to. Yeah, I would say take a look at your category and talk to other sellers in your category. And if you're having inventory challenges, uh, find out if they are. And if they are, expect less discounting to drive sales and prepare accordingly. We have a great visibility across thousands of different sellers. And what we're starting to see, we're seeing, we kind of saw two strategies in Q2. One, a hoarding strategy. So I think that speaks to your import metric about imports picking up. So you saw a lot of brands just starting to hoard stuff because they knew that Q3, Q4 was going to be really tough. But then we've seen, uh, um, sorry for the pun, but we've seen other brands really miss the boat and not bring that that inventory in and are really struggling to think about or, or figure out how they're going to be successful in Q4. So it's going to be a difficult year and brands are, are adjusting as quickly as possible. The chief merchandising officer of Foot Locker this week was talking about their strategy and they're very focused on a internal communication strategy to ensure that they can be as flexible as possible. They don't have strong control over their strategy going into Q4 because they just don't know what it's going to bring. So what they're doing is fortifying internally to be flexible and adaptable as the market changes in real time so that they don't miss their targets and they don't disappoint a lot of consumers. Mm -hmm. And when you say the internal communication strategy, you're saying all the way through to the front line in terms of the flexibility. Yeah. I mean, it's your your customer support is going to be bombarded with where's my order or what happened to my order. And they're going to want to try and save that revenue, especially if they've oversold things or have sold things that they can't deliver on. They need to find ways to delight customers and deliver a good experience as quickly as possible. And of course, they sell thousands of different SKUs. So it's going to be very fast moving time for them. And they need to make sure that those making the strategic decisions about what to do are very well connected with 
the ground level people who are dealing with customers and customer inquiries as they come in. And do you expect e-commerce to take an even bigger jump this year than it did maybe last year? That's going to be hard to tell. Last year was a record year. It was just an absolute anomaly in terms of how much e-commerce grew. And so we have seen numbers start to normalize over the last two quarters. But I think it's difficult to predict what will happen because of what's happened in the supply chain. So if consumers are going to stores and the shelves are bare, you may see an uptick in e-commerce. But it's hard, to be honest with you, I, I, I can't quite answer that because I just don't know how bad the supply chain stuff is going to permeate into the consumer layer and what effect that's going to have on consumers looking around across the online environment to try and find alternates or find the product that they're actually looking for. It's going to be really, really interesting to see mm-hmm. what happens over the next couple months. And we're so spoiled as consumers that will definitely be happening. If a store does not have what we want, we're going online. If their online store doesn't have, we're looking everywhere. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, Jason Stuckey, it was great to have you on the show. And of course, I hope to have you back again. Where can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, it's great, Julia. Thanks for the time today. And I hope the the listeners found that valuable. Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn. Best place to reach out to me. It's Jason Stuckey. uh, Type in Jason Stuckey Linworks. You'll find me. Send me a message. Connect with me. I love speaking with retailers, brands, sellers, technology providers, learning a lot about what they're seeing, sharing insights with one another because you know, we're all in this together and we're all trying to drive this trend towards a digital first economy forward as much as possible. So the more that we collaborate and share, the better off we'll be. You've been listening to Rethink Retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion, rethink.industries.com.